Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Kyra, and we are returning for episode 9 of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey. In the last episode, we found ourselves stuck in a cave with Mike Wazowski's great, 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 plus a few more ancestor. To be a bit more specific, we found ourselves in a cyclops cave, because Odysseus didn't listen to his men when they begged him to just steal food and goods from the giant beast, even though Odysseus had a gut feeling that the encounter with this giant brute would not go well. Oh well, I guess it's not a big deal. The Cyclops didn't start eating them until Odysseus threatened him with the gods. How could Odysseus know that would happen? Well, the Cyclops is not afraid of the gods, and in fact calls them weak. And when Odysseus lies to the Cyclops about where his ship is and why he's there, the Cyclops eats his men. But the Cyclops doesn't eat Odysseus, and this is, after all, Odysseus' story. So who cares? Welp, I'm pretty sure someone cares, like the two men's families, but hey. This is an epic Greek tale, and those men weren't heroes, they were just followers. Let's continue on this morally objectionable tale, and I promise to rein in my sarcasm, but just a bit. In this episode, we'll continue our look at one of the most famous of Odysseus's tales, his battle with Polyphemus, the Cyclops. The battle that brings about the wrath of Poseidon, which then plagues Odysseus for nearly ten years. When the young dawn with fingertips of rose lit up the world, the Cyclops built a fire and milked his handsome ewes all in due order, putting the sucklings to their mothers. Then, his chores being dispatched, he got another brace of men to make his breakfast and whisked away his great door slab to let his sheeps go through. But he, behind, reset the stone as one would cap a quiver. There was a din of whistling as the Cyclops rounded his flock to higher ground, and then stillness. Well, that sounds like a lovely morning. The Cyclops wakes up, goes about his peaceful and caregiving chores, making sure his sheep are taken care of, making sure the babies get their breakfast. He gets his own breakfast. What was that again? Oh yes, another brace of men. Wait, what? Just casually, it seems like, the storyteller, which in this case is Odysseus, throws in there that the Cyclops just ate two more of his men. And without even ending this sentence, remember Odysseus is retelling the story to the Phoenician king Alcinous, when he washed ashore on Scyria after leaving Calypso's island, without even finishing a sentence. Odysseus continues on and says that the Cyclops whisked away his great door, his giant stone door, which goes to show just how giant the Cyclops is, because, I mean, I whisk away a fly, I don't whisk away a door, and this dude just treats his door like it's no big deal, whisks it out of the way. The Cyclops goes about his business, whistling, clearly without a care in the world that he just ate two more men, cold-hearted. And yet, he seems nice to a sheep. Maybe one must be a sheep to be loved by a cyclops? We'll see. Odysseus then, in lines 223-224 of our version, goes on to tell how he pondered his revenge. How to hurt him worse if but Athena granted what I prayed for. Clearly sticking to his goddess and appealing to her protection and revenge tendencies. And then Odysseus tells us his plan, or as he says, what would serve my turn. A club or a staff lay there along the fold, an olive tree felled green and left to season for the Cyclops's hand. And it was like a mast, a lugger of twenty oars, broad in the beam, a deep sea-going craft might carry. So long, so big around it seemed. Now I chopped off six-foot section of this pole and set it down before my men who scraped it, and when they had it smooth I hewed again to make a stake with a pointed end. I held this in the fire's heart and turned it, toughening it, then hid it, well back in the cavern, under one of the dung piles in profusion there. So Odysseus, 
with a precious time the Cyclops is away for the day, sees a club or a staff of the Cyclops. But to him, to Odysseus, it was so big it was a mast, which is the giant pole that holds up the sails of a ship. Visualize that. The Cyclops has this tree branch that is big enough for him. It's like a club. It's like a baseball bat. But it's big enough for Odysseus and his men that it's like a giant sailing pole. This Cyclops is ginormous. Remind me again why Odysseus wanted to hang out in his cave and wait for his return? Hmm, I don't know. It'll be fun, they said. Odysseus sees this club and chops a six-foot section of the pole and has his men smooth it down. And then Odysseus makes one of the ends pointy. He held this now pointy end of the stick into the fire to toughen it. It looks like Odysseus is making a giant kebab stick, a giant skewer, and then he hides it in a pile of poo. Whose poo? We don't know. ruh -row. This has the potential to cause a lot of problems, Scooby-Doo. Odysseus continues with describing his plan. Now came the time to toss for it. Who ventured along with me? Whose hand could bear to thrust and grind that spike in the Cyclops' eye? When mild sleep had mastered him, as luck would have it, the men I would have chosen won the toss. Four strong men, and I made five as captain. In other words, let's toss a coin to see who will risk their life along with me to use this giant skewer to hurt the mean Cyclops while he sleeps. And it just so happens that the exact men Odysseus wanted with him won the toss. As the saying goes, if I've learned one thing... It is that coincidences don't happen in Greek mythology. So clearly, someone made sure that Odysseus would get the men that he wanted with him. Anyways, the Cyclops comes home at evening time and brings his flock with him, including all of the rams, which Odysseus thinks is a good thing. I'm honestly not sure at this point, but I'm sure it will become clear later. But nonetheless, none of the Cyclops' creatures were left outside. The Cyclops puts his giant stone door back in place, locking all the sheep and goats and humans inside with him. He, of course, needs to eat dinner, and he has a ready meal. More men! He eats two more of Odysseus's men, and then there were eight. And at this moment, as Odysseus tells the Phoenician king, Odysseus said to the Cyclops, Cyclops, try some wine. Here's liquor to wash down your scraps of men. Taste it, and see the kind of drink we carry under our planks. I meant it, for an offering if you would help us home, but you are mad, unbearable, a bloody monster. After this, will any other traveler come to see you? Odysseus goes with a here, have some wine, wash down these tasty men you just ate. The special wine we were going to offer you if you helped us, but I hate you, you evil monster. Who would want to visit you now? I'm not exactly sure this is a strategy that I've heard before, but it does the trick because the monster takes the wine. So maybe Odysseus just annoyed him enough so that the Cyclops wasn't suspicious of why Odysseus, this person he's holding captive, suddenly offered him a nice gift. The Cyclops, of course, would not be satisfied with one bowl of wine. He's a giant. He demands another, and he asks for Odysseus's name so he can give him a gift. Again, with the gift giving. Clearly, this is a part of Greek culture and custom, except I, like Odysseus, would not want a gift from a man-eating Cyclops. Odysseus gives him more wine and sees the fuddle and flush, or the state of confusion caused by alcohol, come over the Cyclops' face. It is here that Odysseus really shines. This is the main reason I like Odysseus, even though most other times I find him puzzling and troubling as a hero. Cyclops, you ask my honorable name? Remember the gift you promised me and I shall tell you. My name is Nobody. 
mother, father, and friends, everybody calls me nobody. Rather than give him a name, Odysseus is called nobody, which sounds a lot like nobody. And therein lies the genius of Odysseus. But we'll have to wait and see why this is such sweet genius. The Cyclops tells nobody the gift. Nobody's my meat. Then after I eat his friends, others come. There's a noble gift now. The gift, in other words, I'll eat you last. But the Cyclops at this point was led astray by his hasty drinking, for even as he spoke, he reeled and tumbled backwards, his great head lolling to one side, and sleep took him like any creature. Drunk, hiccuping, he dribbled streams of liquor and bits of men. That's beyond disgusting. And Odysseus reacts swiftly. It continues to be gross, so be forewarned. Now by the gods I drove my hand, spike deep in the embers, charring it again, and cheered my men along with battle talk to keep their courage up. No quitting now. The pike of olive, green though it had been, reddened and glowed as if about to catch. I drew it from the coals, and my four fellows gave me a hand, lugging it near the cyclops as more than natural force nerfed them. They take the giant kebab stick, the giant steak, and they heat it near the fire until it nearly catches fire. That's how hot it is. And then they take it and carry it near the cyclops as more the natural force nerve them, which means we have some godly interference again. So perhaps Athena is answering Odysseus's prayer and helping his men find courage. Straightforward, they sprinted, lifted it, and rammed it deep in his crater eye, and I leaned on it, turning it as a shipwright turns a drill in planking. So with our brand, we bored that great eye socket while blood ran out around the red-hot bar. Eyelid and lashes were seared. The pierced ball hissed, broiling, and the roots popped. From here, around line 300, we get this nice metaphor about the eyeball being burned out, akin to a smithy or blacksmith who heats up an axe head and melts the metal. Remember, we're at the tail end of the Bronze Age here, and the metal spits and screeches, that's what's happening to the Cyclops's eye. And of course, Cyclops roars awake and claws at his face, trying to tug the kebab stick out of his eye. He throws away the stake and feels around blindly for Odysseus and his men. His roaring and crying out cause the other Cyclops to come and check on him. Yes, there's more than one. And they ask, what ails you, Polyphemus? Why do you cry so sore? In other words, why are you waking us up, bruh? We're sleeping. And... Out of the cave, the mammoth Polyphemus roared and answered, Nobody's nobody's tricked me. Nobody's ruined me. The rest of the Cyclops replied, Ah, well, if nobody has played you a foul there in your lonely bed, we are no use in pain given by great Zeus. Let it be your father, Poseidon Lord, to whom you pray. See what Odysseus did. Now, when Polyphemus cried out for help, and the other Cyclops came, he told them that nobody had hurt him. So, even though they could help, they think that Polyphemus stabbed himself in the eye rather than someone else stabbing him, and they tell him to call his dad for help. Odysseus, the mastermind of war and the blinder of a cyclops, was filled with laughter to see how like a charm the name had deceived them. But they weren't safe yet. They were still stuck in the cyclops's cave. And Odysseus gives us this image of the Cyclops guarding his, jaw, his door like a giant, albeit blind, goalkeeper, while Odysseus kept thinking how to win the game. While Odysseus kept thinking how to win the game, which that phrase is quite telling. Odysseus sees this as a game. Who can win? 
who can be the smartest. He hasn't taken into account, at least not yet, that four of his men have died whilst in the cave, a cave that they didn't want to be in. Anyways, Odysseus drew on all his wits and ran through tactics, reasoning as a man will for dear life until a trick came, and it pleased him well. He looks at the Cyclops' rams, who were fat with heavy fleeces of dark violet. Now, when I look at sheeps, whether ewes or rams, I don't get any genius ideas, but apparently when life or death situations occur and there are rams around, Odysseus gets creative. He ties three of them together, side by side by side, and underneath the middle ram, which is sandwiched between the other two, he attaches a man, kind of like a, a ram hammock. Of course, Odysseus chooses the wooliest ram, the choicest of the flock for himself, because he is the leader, he is king. And strapped underneath the rams, they wait until morning. When dawn spread out her fingertips of rose, the rams began to stir, moving for pasture, and peals of bleeding echoed round the pens. Blind and sick with pain from his head wound, the cyclops touched each sheep before he let them out the door. As Odysseus brags, but my men, riding the pectoral fleece, were not found by the giant's blind, blundering hands. Yay! The men escape underneath the chest of the rams! Last of them all, my ram, the leader, came weighted by wool and me with my meditations. Odysseus is free, yet he is heavy with thought. Oh no. Why is he heavy with meditations? And he is so heavy that the choicest ram is slow, and the cyclops notices. The cyclops patted him, and then he said, Sweet cousin ram, why lag behind the rest in the night cave? You never lingered so, but graze before them all, and go afar to crop sweet grass, and take your stately way, leading all along the streams, until at evening you run to be the first one on the fold. Why, now, so far behind, can you be grieving over your master's eye? That carry-on rogue and his accursed companions burnt it out while he had conquered all my wits with wine. Nobody will, will not get out alive. Nobody will not get out alive, I swear. Oh, had you brain and voice to tell me where he may be now, dodging all my fury, bashed by this hand and on this rock, his brains would strew the floor, and I shall have rest from the outrage. Nobody worked on me. And there, of course, is a bit of irony here, because if the ram could talk, he would say, bruh, he's right here, underneath me, and Odysseus would be smashed to pieces. But alas, even in Greek myths, sheep couldn't talk. And so, Odysseus and his men are sent with the rams into the open, and they each roll clear of the rams' bellies. They round up the sheep to take them back to the boat. They, of course, need to steal them after all. It seems all clear. Odysseus and his best remaining men are heading back with some sheep to the boats. They load up, they set off, and they're heading across the bay to the rest of the men. And then, and then Odysseus lets his ego out to play. He has to tell the Cyclops that he's won. Oh, Cyclops, would you feast on my companions, puny am I, a caveman's hands? How do you like that beating we gave you, you damned cannibal, eater of the guest under your roof? Zeus and the gods have paid you. And the blind Cyclops, in his doubled fury, broke a hilltop in his hands and heaved it after them. Ahead of our black prow, it struck and created a giant wave that washed the ship stern foremost back to shore. They're nearly back to where they left off, stuck with the Cyclops. Odysseus decides to pitch in and uses the boat hook to keep them from ending up on the shore. 
and he tells his men to row and row or die. But that doesn't stop him from yelling again, oh no, of course not, he is Odysseus, who, as Athena said in book one, can do and escape from anything. But I'd like to point out that doesn't mean his men can do or escape anything. Odysseus explains, now when I cupped my hands, I heard the crew in low voices protesting, God's sake, captain, why bait the beast? Let him alone. And other such things. Hmm. Another common sense request that Odysseus ignores because the Cyclops may know he's been beaten, but he doesn't know who has beaten him. And that Odysseus cannot abide. Everyone must know his name. He must be a hero. He must be legend. I would not heed them in my glorying spirit, but let my anger flare and yell, Cyclops, if ever a mortal man inquire how you were put to shame and blinded, tell him, Odysseus, raider of cities took your eye, Laertes' son, whose home is on Ithaca. After telling the Cyclops his name and his address, kind of in an Iron Man fashion, the Cyclops rumbles about a prophecy he had received, but not connected to until now. A wizard, grand and wondrous, lived here. He foretold things that would come. My great eye lost as Odysseus's hands. But the Cyclops explains he never imagined that a puny human could do this. He always imagined some giant, armed in giant force, would come and take his eye. But this, but you, small, pitiful, and twiggy, you put me down with wine. You blinded me. Incidentally, in this speech to the world, he tells Odysseus that, as a little tiny man, Odysseus has defeated him, the giant, giving Odysseus the recognition for his greatness and wit that he wanted, telling Odysseus that he has won the game. But the Cyclops has one last move, one last checkmate, his father. Come back, Odysseus, and I'll treat you well, praying the god of earthquake to befriend you. His son I am, for by his own avowal he fathered me. At this... The Cyclops stretched out his hands in darkness towards the sky of stars and prayed to Poseidon. Oh, hear me, Lord, blue girdler of islands, if I am thine indeed and thou art father, grant that Odysseus, raider of cities, never see his home. Laertes' son, I mean, who kept his hall on Ithaca, should destiny intend that he shall see his roof again among his family and his fatherland, far be that day and dock the years between. Let him lose all companions and return under strange sail to bitter days at home. Let's just ruminate on that because this incident, this completely avoidable incident, is the reason it takes Odysseus 10 years to get home. The Cyclops prays to his father Poseidon that Odysseus will never return home. But if he does return home, then let there be dark years between, and even worse, let him lose all companions and return under strange sail to bitter days at home. Really covering all his bases here. If this were a letter asking for presents, this is what it would say. Dear gift god, this year I would like Odysseus to die, but if I can't have that, then I would like Odysseus not to return home. And if I can't have that, then I'd rather Odysseus not return home for many dark years, and he suffers a lot, and when he does get home, it's bitter and unhappy. And, and don't forget, he should be all alone, and all of his men must die. Please and thank you. Odysseus and his men make it away from the Cyclops after dodging a few more hilltops and boulders thrown their way, and they rejoin their party who waited for them across the bay. But... As Odysseus and his men unload the sheep to distribute them amongst the, all the men, we learn that their success comes at a price. 
Odysseus burns an offering to Zeus, but, as he says in hindsight, Zeus disdained my offering, destruction for my ships he had in store, and death for those who sailed them, my companions. And without knowing the destruction that was to come, Odysseus and his men feast on sheep and wine and go to sleep. It is here, at the end of Book 9, that we finally see Odysseus mourn the loss of his men. When the young dawn with fingertips of rose touched the world, I roused the men, give orders to, the, to man the ships, cast off the mooring lines. So we moved out, sad in the vast offing, having our precious lives, but not our friends. We've come to the end of our episode. In this episode, we've covered the rest of Book 9. We resumed with Odysseus taking up the storytelling himself, relaying his previous journey to the king of the Phoenicians, and we hear the gruesome and sad story of Odysseus losing the lives of four men, all because he wanted to see what else, you know, besides food and cheese and sheep, the giant brute Polyphemus had to offer. We also see Odysseus's strategic wit firsthand in plotting their escape from the Cyclops' cave. And we also see his flaws, his humanity and his ego when he reveals his true name to the beast he just blinded. Lastly, we realized that while Odysseus and his men sail away at the time, his men's death is coming and only Odysseus will survive. Special thanks to Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Homer's The Odyssey.